sit at ease and let yourself listen. A lot of excitement in the room, too. Oh, my gosh. It's wonderful. And as you listen, again, as I said before, um, it's not particularly that you have to remember anything. There's no quiz, no grades. Um, you really want to listen to see if something rings true in your own heart, in your own experience that's of value. It's really a reminder of something. Um, and it gives you, as you listen, a chance to, just as we sat together in silence for a bit, it gives you a chance to do your own inner reflection. And tonight I'd, I'd like to start uh, a series of teachings over this year um, by talking about the, the generous heart. And in these demanding times, there is in a, a simple way a call for medicine, medicine of healing, healing of the spirit and the heart, and healing of the community, and healing of the earth. And just as Spirit Rock offers itself as one form of sanctuary, um, the deeper sanctuary, of course, is the inner sanctuary that we find, the inner garden. It's an interesting thing, actually. I was teaching in um, working with some peace groups in Palestine and Israel some years ago, and I did a whole big benefit and raised a bunch of money for teachers to be offering these teachings in Arabic, in the Arabic community. And one of the teachers, a new teacher that I was kind of counseling and working with, um, I talked about, well, there's this wonderful tradition of um, going up in the mountains or going out you know, to, to some holy place, and it must be beautiful. There must be some tradition where you can speak about going out in the desert and listening in some deep way. And he said, no, 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 I tried that. And that's actually a kind of banishment. He said, when I tried to talk to people about going out in the desert and listening, apparently that's, that's more um, considered a punishment. And he said, so then... I was not sure what the right image was to use for meditation. And then as we talked further, what came from him was the walled garden, you know, in the sultan's court or at the oasis, there's this beautiful walled garden that everyone has within them, a beautiful garden that they can tend and listen to. So that was the language. You have to find your language for, for what is your own sanctuary. Um, and the medicine uh, of the Dharma, Dharma is a Sanskrit word that means truth, the path of awakening, teachings, it has multiple meanings. Um, one of the most fundamental uh, descriptions of Buddhist teachings is dana sila bhavana, which is the Buddhist recipe for human happiness. Dana means generosity, which we'll talk about tonight. Um, sila means virtue um, or honesty or um, living a life of integrity. And bhavana means the cultivation of the mind and heart in a wise way. So it's outer and inner. Um, and uh, yesterday I went with my daughter to the airport to join in um, with 
couple of thousand people at the uh, international part of SFO. Um, she's a young um, immigration lawyer and attorney uh, and an asylum lawyer, so she was part of a group of young lawyers who were making themselves available to families of people who'd been detained or other people who were worried. And then there was a group of them, some who spoke Arabic and Farsi and all kinds of translators, and that part was great. And then there were these different demonstrations um, with, as you can imagine, very creative signs of all different kinds and lots of chanting um, and literally, you know, a couple of thousand people. My favorite, actually, um, was one, there'd be groups of 300 or 500 people here or there in the terminal, was one, people were chanting, there's a whole series of different chants. One of the chants was, um, no ban, no fear, refugees are welcome here. No ban, no fear, refugees. My favorite one had a really good jazz band in the middle, um, brass jazz band, like New Orleans style with trombone and trumpet and saxophone. And so they'd start to chant, no ban, no fear, refugees are welcome here. And the drummer would kick off, you know, and then the sax would come in. And even the cops were smiling. I mean, it was really, they were trying to contain the, the police were actually very good. But, you know, there were some, there were some rowdy people too, as there always is. But there was some feeling that it wasn't just a demonstration against, but also that there was some love in it and some art artistry and that there was something bigger, some joy that was being carried, that this is who we are. And that was really the signs and the things that were most moving were not against something, but they were proclaiming that which we know to be noble and beautiful. Now, um, I don't want to continue tonight to talk about politics. One could, but one wants to turn off the news as well. Um, nor do I assume that everyone in this room has a particular political view. People voted all kinds of ways and all kinds of um, directions and so forth. Um, so I want to talk about something that, that's deeper, that I believe comes from the teachings of the Dharma, or the best of the Buddhist teachings, um, uh, and that nourish the heart and the community, whatever your particular political view or your particular orientation, uh, something that's more universal. But I, I do have to remind you that um, last year in the spring, um, when there was all this talk about the fear of refugees from Syria and so forth, I'd asked in a Monday class, a couple times actually, how many people would seriously consider taking a Syrian woman or woman and children into their home for a year to help them get settled here? And a hundred hands went up. And I took a picture of it and I sent it to um, President Obama and Secretary of State, Kerry, uh, and to a whole bunch of them, to Dianne Feinstein and so forth, said, you know, I want you to understand that there are people who aren't afraid so forth. I also need to let you know that the NSA now knows who you are, so that's all right. <laughs> but they've known who you are for a long time, so you don't have to worry about it. Um, but whatever your, your political point of view or your orientation, um, what I want to speak about tonight as the beginning of this series is the teachings on Buddha nature. They're sometimes described as the inner perfections. Um, and what they talk about 
is what is innate in us um, that we can awaken to, that we can carry and honor the life that we've been given. And so I'll tell some stories, which are stories of human possibility and the great possibility of happiness and freedom and generosity and liberation and joy for each person, no matter what your circumstances. And maybe in a way, the stories and the teachings also can help break the spell of fear, the small sense of self, the sense of separateness um, that when we feel really separate gets guided by fear or rage or revenge or those kind of things. And this is in that way a really radical teaching. Um, it shifts from me first or us first or greed or hatred, not because those things are bad, it's not a judgmental teachings, but simply those don't lead to happiness. And the teachings of the Dharma and Buddhist teachings fundamentally are teachings of the possibility of human happiness for us individually and for us collectively. So here's a, an old story. Long ago when you were much, much younger than you are now, there was a Buddha previous to this Siddhartha Gautama named Dipankara Buddha. And um, he was supposed to have been a being of great radiance and beauty and tremendous uh, generosity and love and affected everyone that he encountered. And so the, the Buddha that we at least teach about or talk about, the, the historical Buddha of 2,500, 2,600 years ago, in this story met the pre, this previous Buddha and was um, so taken by the beauty of this heart and of this being said, I will do whatever it takes to become like him, to become like this. And he made a vow that however long it takes, I too will come to this great possibility of liberation and love that I see now human beings can do. And then it took him, as is true for Buddhas, again in these stories and the mythology, um, a while. The description of a while is called 100,000 Mahakalpas and Four Immensities. And a Mahakalpa, one Mahakalpa is there's a mountain as high, Mount Vipula, a little higher than Mount Everest. And every hundred years, a bird drags a silk scarf across the top of the mountain, wearing it away a tiny bit. And when that Mount Everest-sized mountain is worn down by this silk scarf, that's one Mahakalpa. All right? So we're talking time here, right? And over those 100,000 Mahakalpas and the four immensities, the Buddha-to-be, all of us as Buddhas-to-be, practice generosity, compassion, patience, steadfastness, wisdom, loving-kindness, truthfulness, all the kind of great virtues of the heart, again and again and again. So the Buddha was patient, as you are now, for 100,000 Mahakalpas worth. And then the, there is a, two wonderful huge volumes of stories of the past lives of the Buddha, whether one believes it or not. They're, they're kind of the mythological tales. They're kind of like the fairy tales of India when the Buddha was born as a, 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 the king of the deer or as, a, as an elephant king or a tiger. Many of them are, are kind of animal fables. 
Um, and they're kind of extraordinary ones, the ones about generosity, which I'll talk about tonight. There was the Buddha who was born as a rabbit, and then there was this great yogi in the mountains who was practicing and about to achieve some deep enlightenment, but hadn't eaten for a long time, and the rabbit felt so moved by the dedication of this yogi that he, he threw himself into the fire to offer food for the yogi and so forth. That was That's the kind of excessive generosity of the stories <laughs> and so forth like that, right? And I remember being at Mother Teresa's um, in Calcutta several times to volunteer or various things, and, and there was a sign in one place that the younger nuns had put up, and it's, it, the sign said, Mother says, let them eat you up, you know? And it was, it's kind of stunning, because it, when you're in circumstances of great difficulty or great suffering, often the, the inner protection part wants us to pull back, which has its place. I'm not saying you should all get eaten up, not yet, anyway. But... Um, but this was like this was like the, the 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 tales of the Buddha. Mother says, "Let them eat you up, no matter what is needed. You offer yourself." So that's the kind of tales that these come. And whoever dedicates themselves in the way that this great being, the Buddha to be, did, is called a bodhisattva, someone dedicated to bringing awakening to fulfillment in this world, no matter whatever happens, no matter the political changes, the the civilizations that rise and fall, the empires and so forth. This is the dedication to generosity and truthfulness and compassion and wisdom and loving kindness that is timeless. Now, you might hear about this, and even though it's a recipe for happiness, it seems a little daunting, you know? I mean, how am I going to make myself perfectly generous? It's called perfections or perfectly truthful or perfectly compassionate and so forth. And perfection is really not a good word for it. How am I going to perfect my personality? You tried that. It didn't work very well. <laughs> perfect my body. You've tried that too. It doesn't really work. How about a perfect cleaning job, you know, or a perfectly clean car or apartment? Then what happens? A little while later it gets dirty again. Perfection can't be found in that way, in that very limited idea. And so when you hear these stories, because they're archetypal or mythological, they're not a therapeutic story or a psychological story or a literal story. They don't exist in time. This is really a story about that which is timeless and universal and in all times and in all places um, it is available when you step out of the small sense of the fear and you step into another reality. But extraordinary powers and extraordinary capacities. You know, the mothers who lift cars off their children, you know, or the Chinese man with the shopping bags in front of that whole long row of tanks. That is there in us. And as Martin Luther King said, everybody can be great because everybody can serve. Everybody has it in them to offer something that's beautiful. Robert Johnson, who's a Jungian analyst and, and, a, and a writer, um, now deceased, um, and he wrote books like 
little books, he, she, we, kind of Jungian mythological books. Um, where's, oh, here's the story I wanted. He writes about being in India. Um, I was in India and I got very sick with a fever and great pain over my body and uh, I could hardly walk. Uh, I kept falling down um, and they took me to must have seen my apprehension um, as they tried to assure me that they were a very modern facility. We have a thermometer, the nurse reassured me. I found out their one thermometer was passed from one patient to another. In between, they held it under the water faucet just to be safe. My temperature reached 105, and I had temps, and somehow after 10 days, I survived. While I was hospitalized, I had made a new friend in the weeks. Out, sound, yeah. I'll do what I can, and you kind of imagine the words in between. Um, <laughs> make it up, stories, you know. He came every visit me and slept each night on the floor under my bed. Of all my experiences in India for 20 years, this was the most touching. When I was sick, my friend came and slept near, near me. He said, so I wouldn't be frightened or lonely. Now, in America, if I get sick, I can't get anyone to stay with me very long, you know. Much, much to speak of being under my bed. But here, he slept on the mat there, but he tended me. And then one day when I was... Uh, all right, uh, yep, okay, we'll try it. This is, a, yeah. It's not the Super Bowl, you know, so we can relax a little bit. <laughs> you didn't pay... $5 million for that last 30 seconds or whatever. <laughs> so here he is, and there's his new friend, and he says, I was so sick, and my friend, my new friend Shankar, stood at the foot of the bed and said to me, Robert, I want to tell you a story about Baba and his friend. Baba's friend got very sick, and Baba came and stood behind, beside him and said to him, only you say the word, and I will go to die so that you can live. Robert, for you I am Baba. You have only to say the word and I will die so you will live. Now, that floored me, said Robert. It was like out of the tale of a thousand nights of, you know, some fairy tale. How can you hold this? I was shocked by this story. But at least I had the presence of mind to say, thank you, Shankar, for this great gift. But please don't do anything rash now. I think I have enough life force that we'll both make it through, and we did. But this was the most astonishing thing that happened to me in all my 20 years of coming and going in India. And there's something in the story and in us that resonates and goes, wow, you know, we can really be there for one another, and we can be there for this world in a generous way. Not because you're supposed to or it makes you a better person than somebody else, but because it makes the heart sing, because it makes life come alive, because it brings a, a deep kind of happiness. And so sometimes these teachings are described as a cultivation or a development or a nurturing, but more deeply they're an invitation to step out of the body of fear, the small sense of self, and reclaim your place, your nobility of shared compassion and uh, in this vast universal heart of ours. O nobly born begins the uh, 
Buddhist text. Remember who you really are. And I, I had another story, but I don't know. It's a longer story. If I have time to read it, I'll just tell a tiny bit about it. Um, a true story about a man uh, named Sasha Dichter who worked for... Uh, a, a large fund, a large international fund, um, and he was driving home with his family one day. They used to give money to homeless shelters and things like that. Um, and uh, oh, here, wait a second. He was driving home, and then he was struck by a kind of lightning bolt. And he said he realized he'd made the wrong choice, because people would ask him for things, the beggar asking for money, people helping him this way, and he would give it sometimes and sometimes he wouldn't. In a moment, he had his heart open, he said, I wanted to tr stop saying no, so I needed to break the habit. I decided I was hiding behind this, some discrimination. So he made this decision on the spot that for the next month, he would only say yes to whatever anybody requested. Beggars, nonprofits, street musicians, mail solicitations, they would all get a yes. Now, it happened to be December, right? So he got an str endless stream of year-end appeals. Friends warned him he better be cautious, you know, giving, it to a, giving money to a stranger who might use it on drugs or alcohol. But for the month, he resisted employing this careful scrutiny uh, and instead... He said, we can't know the results of what we do. And he learned that the smartest philanthropists lead with generosity. And so he soon learned that his experiment was never really about donating money. It was a chance to test what it felt like to live with a totally different orientation. It was a commitment to take a door that was closed for his own taste and open it to whatever came. And it changed his life after that. He's written about it in different ways. So this is really the invitation, O oh, nobly born, to discover the first of these ten qualities of your own Buddha nature, of the generous heart. And it's, it's, it's universal. Um, there's pleasure in it. Um, there's gratitude that you have things to offer. And we have so much, really. I remember a friend years ago who'd come out of the Soviet Union when, it was, when there still was a Soviet Union, those of you who are old enough to remember that, um, with long bread lines and not much in the stores under that kind of stark communist economic system at that time. And they'd come to Marin, come to San Francisco, and a friend took him into a supermarket, and he looked around and his jaw dropped. Like, oh my God, he couldn't believe it how much there was, the abundance. And he said, what is this place? Is this special? And the friend said, come with me. They got in the car, and they drove three blocks away, and they went into another supermarket. <laughs> and then he stood there, and he wept. And he said, I had no idea that there could be this kind of abundance. And of course, we take it for granted. You live in enormous abundance, whoever you are in this room, and an enormous kind of privilege, and it's that kind, but it's also the sunlight and the warmth and, in this case, the safety that you have. And you also live with the protection of so many others and goodwill because they all stop at the red lights when your light is green. They really, they protect your life. 
They do, and you protect their lives. Or they don't go in the market and just grab the goods or grab your money. This is not money, not very often anyway. You live in a sea of protection and graciousness and tremendous abundance. So to be generous really means that you begin to feel that already the universe is generous with you. The poet Rumi says, walking out of the treasury building, I feel generous. How can any be, be sober in this weather when we've been given so much? And you can begin to understand the power of generosity as a practice of liberation, not because you're supposed to be a good person or something, but what it does to the heart and mind, um, because it's really a practice of letting go, of expanding who you are of trusting in some deep way. Now reflect for a moment, if you will, on someone who's been generous to you with money or time or love, some benefactor, someone who's really been generous. Picture them, think of the ways they've cared feel whatever arises. How does it feel? I experience delight when I think of this person and gratitude. Anybody else? Just a, a word or two. What does it felt, feel like? Love? Thank you. Hmm? Warmth. Didn't hear that one. Joy. It was really fun to watch you because there was so much animation. And I had this fantasy of beautiful things that had happened to you. Those who are generous are loved. You know, you could feel the love, the joy, the delight, those qualities that come when you think about someone who's been generous to you. Now, the next reflection is think of the times that you've been generous to others and how it feels to you. You know, whether it's supporting another or offering your love and care in whatever way it was, your assistance, your money, somebody that you really serve generously. And generosity means there's a little stretch to it too. Not that you don't want to do it, but that you expand. And then remember one more thing. Remember or sense the opposite. Sometime when you felt fearful, worried about money, stingy, hoarding, grasping, fess up, you've all done it, we have, I have too, frightened about it, you know. And what's that feel like in your life? It's said that there are three levels of giving in the Buddhist teachings. The first is called tentative giving. Oh, I've got this coat in my attic, I'm, you know, closet, I hardly ever wear it anyway. Uh, maybe I should give it away, it takes up space, but yeah, I kind of like it, but I never wear it. And finally, you kind of give it away to somebody. It's still a beautiful thing. It's actually a lovely thing that you did. Even if there's a reluctance, that's fine, doesn't matter. But then the next level is called brotherly or sisterly giving in which you say, oh, they're like me. I have this coat. I have something really nice. You know, you need one. Sure, let's share. 
and there's a, a bigger open heart with brotherly or sisterly giving, let me just offer to you as if you are part of my family, which you are, since, as again, Mother Teresa says, the, the problem is we draw our family circle too small. So you take them into your family. And then there's what's called royal giving, the giving of the empress or the emperor, the king or the queen, in which you take the best of what you have and you say, here, I give this to you because I know what delight it will bring to you. You're so full of well-being and benevolence, you've got the treasure inside that you can give away anything because you're full of abundance. And it's a really beautiful thing to do kingly or queenly giving. And I remember, you know, watching the level of generosity when I was a monk living with an alms bowl in um, some very, at that time, pretty remote villages in Laos and Thailand and Southeast Asia, parts of Burma. Um, and in the dry season, the villages would be very poor out where I was. There wasn't that much to eat. Um, there was rice, and then there was fish that was stored away with uh, chili peppers and things, what they could grow a little bit, um, but not very much. I mean, we used to get curries that were made even from bats or field mice and things like that, because that was what the meat or that had nourishment in it. But anyway, I would go through the, we'd go through the village. You had to be silent. And people would come out, and they would put some of the food that they'd cooked that morning into your bowl. And you couldn't say thank you or anything. You know, oh my God, you gave me a mango. That's like the best thing of the week. Or thank you for whatever you give. You just receive it in silence. And of course, I was thinking I could always wire home to my mom if I got really hungry, you know, and she'd send me a couple hundred dollars, which was the annual income of a family in this village. Um, these were villages that were still weren't wired for electricity, so people wove their cloth and, you know, it was quite very much sustained their own lives. Very poor, but they would do it with so much love. And I think, how can I receive this? How dare I take this from somebody who's hungry, you know, when I come from a culture where there's so much abundance. But then I realized how much delight they had in giving it. And also that they weren't just giving it to me, but they were giving it to what I represented, the other monks and nuns who came through, that we represented something that they so valued in their culture which was awakening and compassion and loving kindness and the liberation taught by the Buddha for thousands of years in their culture, that they said, of the little we have, we want to make sure to support this because it brings joy and light into our whole culture and our whole life. And so here we give this to you. It wasn't really personal. And yet at the same time, I had to take and say, okay, I actually better do this stuff. You know, I can't. I can't be a slacker exactly because their generosity somehow made me rise to the occasion of being maybe a slightly better monk than I might have been otherwise, you know, best as I could on a good day. So you can begin to hear not the um, necessity or the judgment or... Um, like the duty of generosity, but rather the beauty of it 
and the joy of it. Um, and why it fits into the mandala of an awakened life, why it is actually central to the teachings of living a life of a liberated heart and liberated mind. What makes us happy, says the Buddha. Generosity is the first of these, of these aspects of Buddha nature. And it's a practice. Um, as well as awakening in, in you, like the story that I read, I took a kind of inner intention or a vow 20 years ago or so that if I had a thought to give something, I would do it. You know, because you think about it, and then there's a, oh, wait a second, that's too much, or maybe I shouldn't, or I should give it to other people, or all the kind of things that our minds do, right? And I said, if I have a thought to give something, I just do it. And, you know, there's an occasion maybe I can think of in these years where I haven't for whatever reason. But most of the time I've done it, and it's been fantastic. I don't even have to think about it. If it comes, I just do it. I also love to give things to homeless people and people on the streets. And, and you know, I mean, if somebody ha is um, a vet, who, uh, somebody who's mentally ill, somebody who's lost their home, somebody who can't make it, you know, their body's hurting, they're, maybe they're an addict or whatever, and they use my money for, you know, a bottle, a drink. I mean, if I were in their situation, I'd probably want a drink too. I, I don't, it's not about judging what they do with it. It's just saying, I see you, I look at you, and I offer you what I can. So here we are in this human life, you know, with a measure of joy and sorrow and pleasure and pain and gain and loss, of unbearable beauty and an ocean of tears. And this month, you know, and this week, there is personally struggles with family or work or divorce or illness or suicide or all the things that make up the troubles of our life. But also there is the collective troubles that we have. How do we live as a country and a, a wise culture um, in a time when what's being uh, put out often in different ways in the media and so forth is that which tries to frighten us? And do we let that colonize our heart? Do we let that take us over? Or is there another way? You know, is there the way of Nelson Mandela and Aung San Suu Kyi when she walked out of 17 years of being imprisoned by the military, or Nelson after 27 years in Robben Island with such magnanimity and graciousness and, and compassion and forgiveness? No one, they can put you in prison, they can do what they like, no one can take over your heart. No one can take your spirit from you. And so this becomes the invitation. Now what's also important in it is that uh, you don't have to sacrifice yourself to do it. That compassion, generosity, all these qualities are circular. And the circle isn't complete if one person is left out and you know who that person is as Miss Piggy would say, moi, yes, that person. Um, so you can say, is this compassionate or generous 
to her and him or them or whatever? And is it also compassionate to this one? Because somebody has to tend this one and guess who that person is. So there's a kind of a, bar, uh, uh, a balance that's necessary in this. Um, and I remember since I'm talking about Mother Teresa, I went with a colleague here, Wes Nisker, who for many years was on the radio doing extraordinary newscasting. He was kind of like um, The Daily Show or something like that only, only 20 and 30 years before. He would tell the truth on the radio. Um, and it was kind of extraordinary. He would say, here's what happened. People would go, wow, he actually said it. You know, it wasn't all obfuscated. And anyway, we went to, he was working on a show for National Public Radio on spirituality and social responsibility. And so we went to interview different people. We interviewed the Dalai Lama and we interviewed the president of India. Somehow we got to see him. We interviewed all these kind of, and, and yogis and various people. Um, and then we went to visit Mother Teresa. And uh, thought, how are we going to get to see Mother Teresa? I told people I was going to go. And so people around collected money. And I had an envelope with $10,000 to give her from some churches around and so forth. Beautiful thing. I thought, all right, we'll go because sort of knew her schedule. And I'd been there before. Um, and in the morning, she goes to chapel, 5 in the morning, and prays with all the young novices and nuns. So we'll catch her after that. And so I gave her, she came out, and Wes and I greeted her and said, Mother, we're here for just a little while. We're doing this show. Would you mind, can we ask you a few questions? And he pulled out his big reporter's, you know, microphone. And she said, okay, and she sat down. I said, also, here's a gift from these churches. She took that. And then I said, by the way, Mother, would you mind if we filmed this? So I pulled out my camera and turned on a light. She got pissed off. <laughs> it's five in the morning. I just did my prayers. Come on, you guys. What are you trying? I want to go and serve people. And you, you know, you're trying to make your film or something. And I thought, I've come all the way to India and pissed off Mother Teresa. This is just not. <laughs> but there was something in it as well. You know, the point isn't, again, some kind of ideal of how you're supposed to be. The point is, and she was the exemplar of service in many ways, is to serve in the way that really rings true and feels true to your own heart. And of course, we live in the times, homelessness, racism, environmental destruction, and so forth. It's easy to feel overwhelmed or lonely or isolated or, or that you don't know what you can do. I don't know if you've seen it, but uh, one of the short documentaries that was nominated for the Academy Award is called 4.1 Miles. And 4.1 Miles is the distance between one of the Greek islands that's along the Turkish coast, between the Turkish coast and this island. And it's a short film, elegantly done, very few words, mostly the images and a few words from that follows a Coast Guard captain in his sort of fish Coast Guard fishing type boat um, going out to rescue refugees day and night on these floating boats, those who live, those who die. And this little island um, and the islands nearby have had 600,000 refugees come on boats from Turkey crossing into Europe, you know, and they're overwhelmed but they keep doing it. It's really extraordinary because he said, I have a boat and there are children out there.
And so you see them going day after day, you know, and it, could, it makes you weep to watch it, but also it wakes you up to a reality in a way that we can get inured to watching the images on television or reading about it. You can't deny it when you see it. So we live in this kind of time, and you might feel, I can't do enough, what can I do? But the point is really just to start to listen, to know your limitations and your capacities, but also to know that you are greater than you think. And that's the beautiful thing of these teachings, to say, oh, nobly born, whoever you are, you have a capacity to serve. You have a capacity to give. And as Gandhi said, what I do, I don't do for India. I do for my own joy. You have, just as you did that reflection on what does it mean to receive generosity from another or to offer it, you have this possibility in you, oh, nobly born, and remember it. Of course, there are seasons to it. You know, there are times when you want to give to someone, but at the same time, if you look at a mother lioness or a bird or a wolf, they nurse, they provide, they sacrifice for their offspring. And then one day, it's the day to fly baby and they kick them out of the nest, you know, or it's the day you've got to go hunt and they disappear and you're hungry and you're on your own and you have to go learn how to get your own food. And so it's not that it's a, okay, let's take care of everybody like the mommy of the world. Um, there's, a, there's both a dignity in it and a, a kind of attention that's beautiful that says, what can I serve? What do I understand and how can I bring this to others? And sometimes what you have to offer is your tears. You know, how do I serve in the, in the greatest difficulty? The Dalai Lama and Tutu had this conversation about joy and how they keep their spirits up in a terrible times in the world. What do you do when things are really bad? And they had an interesting answer. Part of it was service and generosity. But then the question was asked again, what do you do when things are really bad? And they said, you show your humanity that being the greatest gift in many ways that you can give. The beautiful story in this Ramdas book called How Can I Help? And if you don't know it, it's one of my favorite books ever. Um, and it's of a woman who was a Mary Knoll sister who worked in, the, in Peru as a school teacher, but at a very high altitude at 13,000 feet. Um, and then she got quite sick and she came back and she needed surgery and she could not work at the high altitude and she actually became crippled. And she thought, will I go back to Peru? Can I do anything? But she decided to go back and see and she went back in the low altitude, lower altitudes and she said, everything changed, especially my attitude toward people. I could feel their poverty and pain in a new way as if I was seeing it for the first time. And the affirmation I got was, you're the same person you were before. Even if you can't teach or do anything, we want you to stay. And my ministry changed. It became the ministry of walking together. So I found others with physical disabilities because I couldn't walk so well, and she'd been crippled by this. Um, and we were just trying to be together and being with them in love. And of course, she said many of the 
Peruvians we ran into with handicap were deeply ashamed. Some were hid or they would hide their children. I think of Juan, a polio victim at three who'd been hidden by his family behind their little house until we discovered him at age eight, in five, five for five years. His brother Julio took us home one day and there was Juan, twisted legs under him, scooting around the dirt patio on a circular piece of rubber. His mother was suspicious. A handicapped child meant she was being punished for something in her belief system. Think of the child, think of the mom. So we returned on several occasions to visit him. One time we found him alone. His family with the rest of the town had gone on a religious procession. Of course, he'd never seen one. So we borrowed a bicycle, put Juan on it, and joined in the procession. It was his first time outside the house, the first time he'd looked at people from a level, level higher than the ground, his first procession. His parents were initially annoyed, but their attitude changed. And when we thought it was right, we asked at the next town meeting if we could raise money to send Juan to Lima for physical rehabilitation. They liked the idea and he went off. And after a long, hard struggle for a year, pain and effort, one day he returned to the village. He was using braces in a cane. It was really hard for him. But as he began to walk down the street to his home, people come out from their own homes. They appeared from all over. They were cheering and clapping and followed him all the way home. It was so wonderful, it was Juan's second procession. So sometimes what you have to offer, and anybody who's in 12-step work knows this, that what you offer is your truth, what you offer is your own suffering that you've been through, what you offer is your own humanity. And that too can be a tremendous act of generosity. If you think you are too small to make a difference, the problems in the world seem overwhelming. You don't know what you can add. If you think you're too small to make a difference, you've never been in bed with a mosquito. <laughs> it's the small acts, you know. It was beautiful. I think one of the things that touched me at the airport was a, a three-year-old girl with a sign that she had on her that's this beautiful little girl that said, my mom was a refugee, you know, and then you could see her mom, ten, her mom had her other sign, but it was just this little girl who wouldn't have been here, who wouldn't have been safe, who wouldn't have been, but there she was. My mom was a refugee. Refugees are okay. The country is made of refugees, you know, except for the natives who are unfortunately refugees from what the what the invaders have done to the native people here and the genocide but in some way we're all refugees and then the question is can we become not only refugees but can we find refuge and the refuge is really the refuge in care for one another the refuge is in our generosity the refuge is in the nobility of your heart and your care for one another and it's an individual act, but it's also a call um, to the society at large. Who will we be? Who are we really? You know, we have always taken in refugees. This is who we are.
I've been going back and forth to the East Coast because my twin brother has been quite sick with uh, blood cancer with myelofibrosis and leukemia. And the last year and a half, it's been a long series of treatments and chemo and different things like that and kind of getting more and more difficult. So not not sure how much longer he'll be alive. Um, as I said last time I was here, part of the thing that's so moving to me is the times that he's in the hospital or when he's in the cancer center, Dana-Farber, um, and I'm there with the kids with bald heads, you know, and the families holding somebody who's coming in a walker or the people with the masks on because their immune system is gone. Um, and I see all the people who are tending them, the family members who bring them. There's so much tenderness. The nurses and doctors and staff, um, it's an amazing thing to watch how much we actually take care of one another. It's a beautiful thing. And my youngest brother, Kenneth, who's uh, eight years younger, so he's now 63, has been um, donating platelets to, he was the one who donated for a stem cell transplant, which worked for a little while and then stopped working. But um, the blood donations haven't worked for my twin brother except from this matched one matched brother. I tried, but it wasn't a match. So he, for the last number of months, every five days, he gives blood to my brother. He lives here, he flies east, hangs for a couple of days, and then comes back. You know, and he just does it. He doesn't think about it particularly. He said, it's my brother, of course I'll do it. You know, it's like the story of uh, Joan Schmidt, I believe her name was, who was a first grade teacher in Wisconsin. And she had a little girl in her first grade class who was on dialysis because her kidneys had failed and it looked like she wasn't going to make it. And her teacher said, oh, um, I'll give her a kidney. You know, this is different than giving her homework, right? She needs, and she did. She donated her kidney to this little girl who's now, it's five years later since that story, who's now in middle school and thriving and so forth. Um, but I just see how much care there is in the world for every act of brutality, for all the kind of fear that there is, for all the terrible things that happen. There's a nobility to humanity that is your birthright. And to meditate is not so much to have some meditation experience, although they come and they're quite wonderful and insights, but it's really to quiet ourselves, to listen to the heart, to still ourselves a little bit in the midst of all the noise of life and politics and demands and possibilities and reflect what really matters, you know, at the end of the day or the end of the year or the month. Um, what do I wish that I'd done, intended? How can I live? How can I offer myself? How can I offer myself to this world? And I remember, you know, it's not just the rabbit throwing himself into the fire in that kind of remarkable Buddhist tale. Um, but we humans really care for one another. That's why we're here. Your ancestors all were survivors, you know. And they did all kinds of things to care for their children and their grandchildren and made it possible for you to be here. So it's not helping others. It's not just generosity is, okay, I'll help you. But it's us. It's our family. It's our brothers, our sisters. And in, 
in this way, you step beyond the small sense of yourself to feel something beautiful, which is your brotherhood and your sisterhood. Um, my teacher Nisargadot in India said, there is really no separateness to self. There is no separate self. And in this open space, in this dark space, there's only one movement, the movement of love. What else really matters to us? Well, I think if you play music and you can bring your band down to the airport, <laughs> that would be a fine thing too. Somehow I think that whatever redemption we bring alive to the problems of the culture actually is best done with a beautiful and joyful heart. Your anger, your fear, your depression, all the things that we also have as humanity and you need to hold with compassion, that's not the game. The game is actually to be like the Dalai Lama or Aung San Suu Kyi or Nelson or whoever you want to name to carry your beautiful spirit into whatever needs tending and plant your seeds and play your music and offer yourself. So let's sit for a moment. When you come to the temple, the sanctuary, come to sit together. May you carry the spirit of nobility, of generosity, the treasure the treasury within you. May you carry your own beautiful heart back out into the world. Thank you again for coming, for your good behavior as you listened. It's kind of nice, you know. Um, drive politely out there. There's lots of cars and it's dark. We're still in the winter season. We might have more rain coming. Isn't that a beautiful thing, you know? And just as the rain comes down, may you offer your rain of love and care to the world. Thank you.